right, green light is on. First item of business checked. Um, you guys are my first in-person sermon ever. I've only ever preached on Zoom so far. Um, so give me grace. Oh, technical difficulties already. There we go. Uh, yeah, so you met me hopefully last week already. And if not, as Nelson said, my name's Audrey and I am in my third year of my Masters of Divinity uh, degree represented by actually Mark Glanville, one of my main professors, and my other boss is here too this morning. So it was funny to get that text this morning. Uh, not scary at all. Um, yeah, so it's pastor school in a nutshell. It's a master's degree. And it's my delight to be talking to you today about interior examination. Nelson and Scott were gracious enough to not give me racism or um, sexuality, which is where we're heading next week. So thankful for that. Um, but a little, little cautionary warning. We are talking about some anxiety today, some trauma, capital T, lowercase t. Um, so we're not totally emotionally off the hook this week, but a little lighter. Just to catch us up from where we've been so far, because last week we got to celebrate Artisan's birthday. We had a little birthday party. Um, Way at the beginning, Nelson brought the message on contemplative prayer, which is chapters one and two, explaining how it's becoming aware of the presence of God in our lives through stillness, silence, slow scripture reading, and rest. A point of that that particularly stood out to me and stayed with me uh, from someone was that righteousness and wickedness in ancient Hebrew understanding is more about the pointing of our feet, either toward or away from God. Kathy Kwan and Scott Oliver McTaggart, because that's how I say his name here, right? I say the full name? Yes, okay. Uh, brought the message on racial reconciliation in this divided world from chapters three and four. Kathy ended her message acknowledging we may be feeling uh, an unsettledness in our body, a tension, a discomfort, a discomfort, and encouraged us to lean into that feeling. Scott shared a quote from Deeply Formed Life on how being deeply formed and is the opposite of shallow living, which ties into today's message really well. Because reconciliation and healing can't happen without looking inside ourselves. Scott also emphasized that God is not colorblind. He created every part of us, and God calls not just each part of us good, but actually very good, even if the world says otherwise sometimes. Similarly, as we talk about what we hold internally today, God is not blind to our wounds or our hidden parts. He created every part of us, and each part, though perhaps wounded, is good. So just to ground all of this in the larger mission of artisan and of what God's mission is in light of the biblical story, creation, Genesis 1 and 2, was called good, and we image bearers were called very good. And despite bad things and brokenness entering the world, the last two chapters of the Bible tell us that we are still very good, and God will redeem all of creation. So think even of the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. There's this cycle in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There is God creating something, brokenness, messiness, and God redeeming that. Similarly, for artisans' mission, we are joining God in the renewal of all things. We are a community seeking to be changed and to create change 
and this is smack dab at the center of our website's homepage. That's just a screenshot. Okay, so let's hold some silence and reflect on where we are today this morning. I invite you to close your eyes, take a breath, hold your posture in a way that's comfortable, breathe deeply, acknowledge your thoughts, your feelings, and your bodily sensations. Maybe you're hungry or over-caffeinated or ragged with lack of sleep or anxious. Maybe you're irritated because you can't calm your thoughts. Maybe you find my voice irritating. Whatever is in your body, feel it, give it grace, and return to the feeling of filling your lungs with air before releasing it again. It's been a long week for a lot of us. I know the Regent community lost a professor unexpectedly on Tuesday morning. And chatting with people this morning, I don't think anyone had a good week this week. Um, so if you're coming here and you have to drag yourself here this morning, if you're tuning in, well done, you're here. So you can open your eyes, and now that we're a little more settled into ourselves, what exactly is internal examination? Villetus defines it as a way of life that considers the realities of our inner worlds for the sake of our own flourishing and the call to love well. It's closely tied to the contemplative life Nelson spoke of and to the reconciliation Kathy and Scott talked about. It's looking within, yes, but it's closely tied her actions. So we have two chapters today. We have chapters five and six, so it is a lot of material. Um, the first chapter, Interior Examination for a World Living on the Surface. Rich confesses that once he was established in his career as a preaching pastor, he noticed a lot of experiences indicating a separation of his inner life, his thoughts, his emotions, and his outer life, what he did and what he said. He speaks candidly about an overwhelming anger that often took over, but covering that anger outwardly. It didn't feel Christian to be so angry, so he covered it as frustration. He goes on to explain uh, that though initially afraid to delve into all that was going on below the surface, once he did this work of interior examination, what he found was a deep sense of anxiety and insecurity. Sharing about a particular argument with his wife, Rosie, he says, I felt powerless to unanxiously remain present and this feeling produced a mounting surge of anger on the inside. I didn't have the tools to access my anger or my sadness in a way that would bring me close to Rosie. He goes on telling the story that in this argument, his anger became so intense it exploded and he slammed down his hand while holding his iPhone on the countertop and completely shattered it in his rage. Does the story feel familiar? What's happening in your body as you listen to the story? We're each carrying weighty things right now and have been for some time. Maybe you heard it and you think, man, it would feel so good to break something. It would feel so good. There's a whole business model of record rooms, right, where we get to go and pay to break stuff and we don't have to clean it up. We have all this bottled up rage that we carry. We don't know what to do with it. Villadas admits that this was a breaking point in being divided, and he knew he couldn't live this way. He soon realized that interior examination, looking inside at our core motivation and forces, 
is critical for connecting authentically with others and developing close relationships. Later he writes, what I was being invited into was a life of interior examination for the sake of loving well. That's really why we're talking about this today, how to love well. Looking at what brought him to this place of finally addressing it, Villadas cites psychologist Alice Miller in her book, The Body Never Lies. Her research and expertise points to the reality that many people tend to cut themselves off from their feelings and doing so by appealing to the often sterile, unfeeling institution of the church because there they hope to find, and usually do, direction and instruction. People have been practicing this kind of internal disconnection since childhood, will depend on institutions like the church, and will let themselves be told what they are allowed to feel. Friends, this is not the way of Jesus. Rich clarifies as well, to follow Jesus in this world requires us to embrace a fully human life, alive to the dimensions of our interior worlds that are often repressed, ignored, and explained away with Bible verses and in the name of respectability. He later writes, we use God to run from God, and we use God to run from ourselves. We grow closer to God simply by living as he created us, fully human, by pointing our feet toward him, by bringing our unsettled discomforts to him, and celebrating the things that make us unique, though all very human things. Just think about Jesus taking the time to weep when he heard about the death of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him. Think about the time he spent in the Garden of Gethsemane before being captured and soon after taken to the cross, how he took time to pray, to weep, to be with his friends. Or think about roughly the two-thirds of the Psalms that are laments and not praises. A favorite contemporary theologian of mine, Walter Brueggemann, writes a lot of his work using the Psalms in their cycle of orientation to disorientation to reorientation. I call him Brugge, so if you ever talk to me about this, I feel like we're on a nickname basis. <laughs> Villadas describes the Psalms as raw, authentic, honest songs that capture the emotional spectrum of our lives. Honestly, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or praying in general or haven't known how to pray lately, particularly as this world feels messy in these last few years, the Psalms are a really good place to start or to start again. And today we'll be grounding ourselves in Psalm 139, 1 to 17 in particular, and I have the Common English Bible version up on the screen. So again, if you want to take this posture of breathing deeply or closing your eyes, or if you want to read the screen, whatever feels comfortable, I invite you to take this in. Lord, you have examined me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, even from far away, you comprehend my plans. You study my traveling and my resting. You are thoroughly familiar with all my ways. There isn't a word on my tongue, Lord, that you don't already know completely. You surround me, front and back. You put your hand on me. That kind of knowledge is too much for me. It's so high above me that I cannot reach it. Where could I go away from your spirit? Where could I go from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I went down to the grave, you'd be there too. If I could fly on the wings of dawn, stopping to rest only on the far side of the ocean, even there your hand would guide me. Even there your strong hand would hold me tight. 
If I said, the darkness will definitely hide me, the light will soon become night around me, even the darkness isn't dark to you. Nighttime would shine bright as day because darkness is the same as light to you. You are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you that I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that very well. My bones weren't hidden from you when I was being put together in a secret place, when I was being woven together in the deep parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my embryo, and on your scroll, every day was written that was being formed for me before any of them had yet happened. Your plans are incomprehensible to me. Their total number is countless. Philodus notes of this psalm, God knows it all. He sees the good in us, the bad in us, the ugly in us. God knows us thoroughly. David goes on in this psalm, praying God would search him intimately, knowing he doesn't know himself the way God knows him. It's the stunning invitation to mutuality in our relationship with God. God wants our whole selves in worship to him because he's made each part. God desires for us to be fully whole and unified within ourselves and within our communities. We're rooting ourselves in Psalm 139 because it answers the question, what does God have to do with interior examination? Why does it matter to us as humans, as Christ followers, living our regular lives, getting coffee, waking up, getting dressed, showering? What does it mean for removing shame from this process and loving ourselves well? All of this relates to the earlier reminders of God's overall mission and artisan's mission, actually. It's about allowing ourselves to not just be deeply formed, but wholly formed to become wholly formed, if you'll excuse the pun. Every part of us is created and known by God, we saw in Psalm 139, and each part is not just called good, but very good, the creation story tells us. We can't compartmentalize the bad parts because we're confronted by bad things daily, externally and internally. This is because the world is marked by what the Bible calls transgression, big word, by brokenness and broken people and sin. Remember the Psalm 1 idea of wickedness or righteousness being where we point our feet. It's a good image of what transgression means. But the world is still called good, and God is still at work in us and in the world. Villadas gives us an excellent definition of this messing up of sin when he writes, sin is the principle of captivity to a power that permeates and contaminates our human reality. He notes that this can be outside of ourselves as well as internal. He goes on saying, it also extends to the limits and failure of living lives marked by wholeness. That's how he defines sin. God in Christ takes on our sin that we may live forgiven, free, and whole. Living in captivity, in some measure or another, living compartmentalized, is not living the way God has created us to live. It's not living the Psalm 139 image of God revealed self-knowledge. And then I call it a fancy word for messing up, being messed up, breaking and brokenness. Not too scary of a word, transgression. Um, Transgression is in the world because each person has free will and autonomy. That's how God made us. We mess up and are impacted by the messing up of other people. 
that God is gracious and loves us unconditionally, so we need to deal with that transgression. And we don't just know that this God-revealed self-knowledge is good and biblical because of Psalm 139 either. Philetus helpfully does the Bible study for us in this chapter. It's like God knew that my Hebrew homework would just get exponentially harder this week and got Brother Rich to do all the hard work for me, quite honestly. It's fantastic. Uh, so the first he lists is 1 Corinthians 11.28, where Paul instructs each person to examine themselves before partaking in the bread and cup of communion. It's necessary because coming to the table, taking communion, is not just about union with God, but also with everyone else gathering around the table. As pointed out in the story of Villadis's moment of deep anger while arguing with his wife when he slammed down his hand and shattered his phone, not looking at our whole selves, not examining what's been driving us can often be what's pulling us away from God and away from those we love. To be in union with God and others, we need to be aware of the disunity within ourselves. Paul encourages the church similarly in his second letter to the Corinthians in 13.5 to examine ourselves to see if, if you are in the faith. Don't test yourselves. Don't you understand that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul isn't saying we need to doubt our faith, but to ask ourselves if we're living with the awareness that the Holy Spirit is alive in us. I know that sounds pretty freaky deaky to us in 2021, um, especially if you're new to the church or to Christianese. All that really means is that you don't need to rely entirely on yourself for anything. Society preaches of independence and self-reliance, pulling ourselves up our bootstraps, but that's not how we're made to live. Here at Artisan, we talk about moving from independence to interdependence. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. Examining ourselves is about asking if we're trying to do life alone, or are we aware of God's empowering and comforting presence in us? Our actions also need to be examined, because it's often a clue to our motivations. Lamentations 3.40 says we must search and examine our ways. We must return to the Lord. Galatians 3, excuse me, Galatians 6, 3 to 5, says something similar as Paul encourages the church to examine each of their work examining their pride and their pleasures. Do our actions show motivation of love for God and for others or something else? Vilda shares with these scriptures that they're not meant to bring us to a place of navel-gazing or shame, but rather to emphasize God's unconditional love for us and the messes of life and the whole of our life and the whole of ourselves. And God's desire for us is to be fully alive, fully healed, fully free, and fully whole. So how are we doing? We're doing okay? Again, if you want to close your eyes, walk around, whatever, do what you got to do. There is grace for that. Um, and I think it's worth sharing that interior examination has been a notable place and has had a notable place in my life, um, particularly since spring of this year. Last year, doing school entirely online, being stuck inside, as we all were, was really, really tough for me. By May, I was at the point where I could barely get out of bed some days, which is very, very unlike me. My HR director, my therapist, and my pastor all pointed out I was severely burned out and that my physical well-being was being drastically impacted. I needed to examine my life and decide what to keep and what to let go of. 
this led me to quit one of my jobs and cancel a bunch of really good plans I had made and to reevaluate what was driving me because, to be honest, a lot of my choices were motivated by shoulds, by what I thought I needed to do because I'm a student, so I need to make money, or I care about my friends, so I need to show up for them. I was operating out of the idea that I wasn't or didn't have enough, and it drained me completely. So now that we have gotten through chapter one, the first chapter of two, now that we know what interior examination is and why it matters to God and to our daily lives, how do we do this? What gets in the way? Maybe you've noticed already that busyness and compartmentalization are two themes that have been present throughout. Busyness leaves no time for self-reflection or examination, and the practice of Sabbath, if we're honest, is barely existent these days. And it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's listed above murder and lying and all those very important things, too. Compartmentalization is the opposite of integration. It's this idea of appearing whole rather than putting in the work to actually be whole. It's hoping for peace and reconciliation while ignoring the ways we get in the way of it or perpetuate broken systems. It's pushing down the parts of ourselves that feel too ugly or too much or not enough, the shoulds, and hoping by ignoring them they'll just go away. Philetus emphasizes that the journey of wholeness never ends. We get a taste of that heavenly healing here and now, but the process won't end until Jesus comes again. Bummer, I know. But we can get a taste, and Villadis gives us four major practices to come to a place where we experience moments of breakthrough, healing, and wholeness. These practices, he says, provide access to the inner worlds we often have trouble navigating and contribute powerfully to the larger root system of deeply formed lives, enabling us to more effectively traverse the world of contemplative life, reconciliation, sexuality, and mission. I encourage you to jot down some of the notes we'll be going through or to make use of the PowerPoint slides that will be made available on our website in a day or two. So the first major one is the examining our family of origins. It has three subcategories. It's the big kahuna of starting to practice self-examination, interior examination. Um, because it's necessary to look at where we've come from to discover the wounds that need healing. This is often the big, painful first step. So the patterns of our family of origin is the first subcategory. And they tell us what we implicitly carry with us that we may not be aware of. A relatively easy example I can give you is that I'm pretty afraid of water, even though I know how to swim. I know that my body knows how to swim. But I'm afraid, or I'm anxious of water, because my parents are afraid of water. Neither of them ever learned how to swim. My dad lost a sister to a drowning when he was growing up. I took that on. Villada shares that at his church, at New Life Church in the Bronx, in New York, they talk about saying, Jesus may light, might live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Can't separate them. Villadis nuances trauma, the second subcategory, by noting that it can be something that happened to you or something that failed to happen to you. I have mixed feelings, to be honest, about his ideas on pages 113 through 114. It's really helpful for understanding the general concept of trauma, uh, but if, you're, if you've experienced trauma and you're still healing from it, 
you might want to skip it, just a little disclaimer there. It's just very generalized, so it's not going to give you what you need necessarily. Um, I do appreciate the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, who defines trauma as not what happens to you, but what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you. I also really love uh, somatic therapy expert Yolanda Renteria and her Instagram, at this is Yolanda Renteria, uh, and her work on somatic therapy, because, say it with me now, you know what I'm about to say, trauma is stored in the body. It's a somatic experience. Uh, and lastly, I don't know if you guys have heard of this person called Dr. Hillary McBride. She's written a couple of books about this. I don't know, maybe she's someone who's worth checking out. I have a winky face in my notes when I say this. Um, messages are the third subcategory. And they have to do, excuse me, scripts are the third subcategory. And they have to do with the messages we receive, the roles we are assigned, and the subconscious ways we believe we must live, the shoulds. And let's be honest, the church is pretty guilty here of communicating harmful messages, as well as our family of origin. Realizing that what I was taught about the Bible versus what it actually says, and encountering Jesus in the text, is so completely different from the messages, roles, and mandates preached to me in my very formative years. Never did I imagine it would be okay for me to be standing in front of you preaching, but here I am. The remaining three practices, though still complex, require a little bit less of our time this morning, since we're a fairly emotionally aware community, so hang in there. Um, the second one is examining our anxiety. It's the second practice Vildas recommends for interior examination. He says, to be anxious is to be human. Vilitas helpfully differentiates between acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. But again, if this is a tender topic for you, it's pages 118 and 119. He talks about it as a concept, right? So it might not read the way you want it to read. What is most relevant and helpful in those pages is that he encourages us to see the triggers of our anxiety as helpful road signs to the wounds most in need of healing asking who or what makes me anxious while being compassionately curious. I love that, compassionately curious. With ourselves, asking the why questions allows us to focus less on being perfect humans and more on being perfectly human. And perfectly human is being messed up sometimes and bringing that to God. Examination of our feelings is the third practice. He again cites psychologist Alice Miller for her distinction between emotions and feelings. Emotions are unconscious responses, while feelings are conscious designations of those emotions. A good way of thinking about this is going back to the example of Villitus slamming down his phone in anger. The anger itself, the emotion, can't be shut down, but the conscious response, the conscious feeling, how we feel that emotion, how to express that, is what we can address. Villadis quotes his predecessors, Pete and Jerry Scazzaro, and the questions they'd ask their leaders for interior examination. What are you mad about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you glad about? The fourth and last practice is examining our reactions, and it's similar to what makes us anxious in our feelings. Our reactions, right, Villadis, tell us more about ourselves than about other people. I don't like that, but it's true. 
that tells us more about ourselves than about other people when we have an intense reaction to something. Taking an inventory using a bullet journal or quick note-taking throughout a week or so can help us be aware of areas of ourselves that are most tender, most sensitive, and most in need of healing. When something happens that causes a deep or notable reaction in yourself, quickly jotting down the answers to these five questions can help us get to the root of the reaction. What happened? What am I feeling? What is the story I'm telling myself? What does the gospel say? Or maybe, what is the good news of Jesus in this? And five, what counter-instinctual action is needed? An example from my own life that I'm hoping will make this more concrete is, I already told you that I never imagined myself preaching as a child, right? It wasn't presented to me as permissible as a female. Now that I'm getting my pastoral education and preaching from time to time, I confess I still have really tender areas of my heart on the topic of women preaching. So when I encounter people or systems less than encouraging to me in this way, historically, I've become quite upset. Sometimes I still do. I feel like I need to defend myself, and this hot rage at the injustice I perceive to be taking place takes over me. And the story I'm telling myself is that I'm being pointed at, shamed, told I'm wrong, told that everything I've discerned about Jesus is wrong. It shakes me. The good news Jesus brought in a very big way is that women matter in this world, and we are not second-rate humans. He made it clear we are gifted and called to serve in his world and in his church as much as men. My counter-instinctual action has since become to imagine coming to the table with those who disagree with me, especially on this topic. To remember that we both belong in the kingdom of God and that our unity as siblings in Christ is more important than my rage at that moment. Now, this is particularly when the person or system is communicating fairly respectfully. The topic of women preaching is one thing, the value of women in my opinion, is a whole other, so I respond accordingly. And there we have it. Two chapters of interior examination, what it is, how to practice it, in roughly half an hour. Uh, maybe your head is swirling, because mine is. So three points to conclude, to bring it all together. Uh, three goals Villadas has in mind for interior examination specifically. The first, is opening ourselves up to the grace and presence of God as we open up and discover the spaces in ourselves we too often push down or ignore. The second goal is to begin to live with greater freedom, honoring ourselves, each part of us, ugly or not, without shame or judgment as these hidden parts come into the light and begin to be addressed. And the third goal, is that we become a less anxious, peace-bringing presence to others in our lives. We become better neighbors. We become able to bless those who curse us, and we become able to love our enemies. We become able to live out the gospel. Or, as one of my professors has said, we become healed people who go out and bring healing to others. That's what we're able to do. We already have medical physicians for our bodies, mental health experts for our emotions, 
and every good thing in this world for our souls, like beautiful trees in October, sunshine, fresh air, good food and drink, laughter and hugs. God created each of those parts, calls each of them good, healed or not, he calls them good, and wants us to bring each part to him to be our whole, full, holy selves, to bring our full selves to God into each other as a way to show ourselves love and this opens us up to receive love in all those dark hidden wounded areas it shows us love and makes us more able to love in return that is the great beauty of how God has formed us in our mother's wombs how he's brought us together on this Sunday morning and then gathering around the table together this is the good news of Jesus and of the living presence of the Holy Spirit at work in each of our, in each of our lives at every moment and every day.